This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The NCAA women's basketball had an incredibly successful season. And now your favorite players from the 2023 to 2024 NCAA season will be in the WNBA. To all our veteran fans, welcome back. And to all the new fans joining, welcome to the W. This season, watch as proven legends Brianna Stewart, Asia Wilson, and Sabrina Ionescu continue their dominance, while rookies Caitlin Clark, Cameron Brink, and Angel Reese prove themselves on a WNBA court. The WNBA is redefining basketball on their own terms this season, keeping the game and players front and center, while celebrating the intersection of identities and perspectives that align with fans. Welcome to the W. You're in for some world-class basketball. It's 3 o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this, all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Today's Sunday Morning Podcast is sponsored by Prudential. What would you do if you had to choose between saving for your kid's college or your own retirement? With the cost of a four-year degree estimated to be over $200,000 in 18 years, it's a real decision many families must make. At Prudential, we want to make sure your biggest financial goals never have to come at the expense of one another. Because financial wellness means planning for their future and yours. Get started today at prudential.com slash plan for both. Prudential Insurance Company of America, Newark, New Jersey. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday morning. And not just any Sunday morning, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And whether you'll be watching the action right here on CBS or at the game itself, chances are you'll be enjoying some snacks along the way. Just be careful if you're among the many people who can't eat anything that contains even a small amount of peanuts. Tony DeCopel will report our cover story. Here's the handoff, and to the end zone! Football and food. 
go hand in hand on this Super Bowl Sunday. But for millions, what's on the plate could prove fatal. It's like someone having an open jar of poison in front of my kids. Yeah. It's that dangerous. Ahead on Sunday morning, the rise in life-threatening food allergies and one new approach to treating them. Street smarts are what one TV show for kids is all about. With Serena Altschul, we'll be celebrating its very big birthday. Hey, welcome to Sesame Street, and welcome to our Bird Kateer meeting. For 50 louder, years, Sesame you. Street I'm has entertained, educated, you're gonna eat the letter, aren't you? Come to Papa! And answered the questions of millions of children, all except one. Excuse me, uh, can either of you tell me how to get to... Uh, how to get to Sesame Street? Mm -hmm. Later on Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> the Oscar ceremony call for the envelope, please, is just three weeks away. Sam Elliott is up for Best Supporting Actor honors and has thoughts to share about that with Martha Teichner. When you got word that you'd been nominated for the Oscar. I read that you said something to the effect of, it's about bleeping time. That was not meant to be taken seriously. But Sam Elliott may have a point. It's got nothing to do with you, Wyatt. It's got... Ahead this Sunday morning. The new sweet and spicy... The voice. The mustache. Sam! The man. Luke Burbank pitches in at Waffle House, open 24 hours. Seth Doan watches the masters at Factum Arte at work. And more, all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. Peanuts, just the sort of snack you could eat by the handful watching the Super Bowl. Unless, that is, you're one of the many people for whom the peanut poses a serious threat to your health. Our cover story is reported by Tony DeCopel. If you like peanuts, you'll like Skippy. There was a time when peanuts were pretty much everywhere. Peanuts, peanut In sandwiches, at baseball games, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. And on the snack table, especially for Super Bowl Sunday. Burkett to the end zone! Hello, Super Bowl, New England! But lately, this everyday favorite has for many become an everyday fear. They both completely passed out during their wow. reactions. Literally, the whole body becomes a hive, like fluorescent red head to toe. Megan Shule is mom to twins Henry and Piper. Both have a life-threatening allergy to peanuts. How many hospital trips? Probably like six. Six? Yeah. The Shule family is far from alone. And it's not just peanuts. While you may have grown up without ever hearing of a food allergy, now an estimated 26 million people, including at least 6 million children, have one and an allergy to peanuts is believed to be one of the most severe. That's led to peanuts being banned at schools, stadiums, even the skies, where Southwest Airlines stopped serving them on its planes last year. I just am petrified of peanuts, which to me, it's 
like someone having an open jar of poison in front of my kids. Yeah. It's that dangerous. But can all this danger be a thing of the past? Researchers now think they can slow or even eliminate the problem. Step one, a rare reversal of medical advice. In 2000, the American Academy of Pediatrics told parents to avoid giving their kids peanuts until three years of age, guidance that became gospel for many. It was a recommendation based on this intuitive feeling that if you withhold, therefore, you're going to protect the children. Intuition is not science, as I'm exactly. sure you would tell people. That's, you bet. And that's but Dr. Exactly Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, now believes that telling families to eliminate peanuts actually made things worse. Was that an error? I didn't make the recommendation. You didn't. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say it was an error. I think what it was, it was a judgment call that in the retrospect was the wrong call. So what's the right call? Try the complete opposite approach. Doctors do an about face on how best to prevent kids from getting potentially deadly peanut allergies. That's right, experts are now urging parents to feed their kids peanuts early and often. And Dr. Fauci says exposure could lead to as much as an 81% drop in new cases. I think there's the possibility and the likelihood that you will see a dramatic decrease in the peanut allergy. That is certainly welcome news to Bob Parker, president of the National Peanut Board. Anytime you see an article about food allergies in general, there's, there's going to be peanut. a picture of peanuts on <laughs> yep. it. There's no doubt peanuts are the poster child of food allergy. He says the explosion in peanut allergies has led to tens of millions of dollars in lost sales and lost customers. That's the risk you run when you have bans and when you have 30 million kids that can't eat their peanut butter and jelly sandwich at school in a day. For 12 years, they're not going to eat peanut butter sandwiches and they're not going to give peanut butter to their children one day. It's something that's of a great concern to us. His concern goes well beyond the bottom line. It hits home. That's because Harper's own grandson has a severe peanut allergy. It was very emotional. It was emotional for me. It was emotional for my daughter, who got educated because of peanuts. Peanuts paid for school. Peanuts paid for school. They paid for her to grow up <laughs> and to have a son who was allergic to peanuts. I think she almost felt like she had failed me, but no, she had not failed me. There was nothing she could do. That's in part because nobody, not even the experts, are certain where food allergies come from. If you have a food allergy, what's the experience of walking into a place like this? Well, it could be like entering into a minefield. Dr. Scott Cicero directs the Jaffe Food Allergy Institute at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. So there are a lot of theories as to why there's been an increase. It goes from everywhere from what we call the hygiene or cleanliness hypothesis to vitamin D to the way that the biology of our body may have changed or even the food supply. That's right. One of the leading theories is we're just too clean. The hygiene hypothesis, everyone seems to like this one. We're not dirty enough. Right. So, so the main hypothesis for the change, because there's a genetic aspect of food allergy, but it had to be environment to account for such a rapid increase. Something had to have changed for us. While there's no cure for food allergies, there are encouraging experimental treatments involving careful and supervised exposure.
like small doses of peanuts in a pill, or here with Henry, on a patch. So this bypasses the mouth and slowly teaches the body to accept peanut and to try to stop attacking it. It's sort of like a nicotine patch for peanut. And by the end, they'll be at a baseball game eating a whole bag. That would be great. Wow. I mean, we'll try whatever we can. And I, I don't need my kids to eat peanut butter sandwiches. I don't need them to ever have a peanut butter cookie. I just want accidental exposure to be tolerated. Hope for families and physicians. And for Henry, something sweet. Or at least be able to eat Snickers or a Kit Kat and be fine. Or Twix, that's all I want to eat. From the very beginning, Cadillac urged men to join the company and sell. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. February 3rd, 1948, 71 years ago today, the day Cadillac is said to have produced its very first car featuring the most controversial styling note of all time, the fin. Inspired by the twin tails of World War II P-38 fighter planes, those first Cadillac fins were little more than bumps with tail lights. But come the 1950s, that all changed. A sort of tail fin arms race raged, led by General Motors and Chrysler. Peaking, as it were, with the 1959 Cadillac, featuring oversized space-age fins that even Flash Gordon might have thought excessive. Come the 1960s, the design wheel turned once again, as cars gradually became smaller and more rounded. Not that those bechromed and befinned behemoths of the 50s are entirely forgotten. In fact, just a few years ago, Cadillac itself paid an homage of sorts in a TV ad featuring its most up-to-date model, leaving its predecessor behind. In effect, saying to the tail fin, Finny. Today's Super Bowl is being played in the heart of the South, likely to last a few hours at most. But Atlanta has another claim to fame that's open 24 hours. Here's Luke Burbank. The eyes of the world are on Atlanta today. But what about the stomachs of the world? Well, if they're at the Super Bowl, there's a good chance they'll end up at a Waffle House. There's something that appeals to everybody, whether you're a Southerner and you love grits or whether you have to have the hash browns. It is a Southern atmosphere. It's a Southern menu. It's, uh, it's Southern. Founded in 1955, the first Waffle House was just a tiny rectangular box. I think it was a neighborhood restaurant. That original location, now a museum in Atlanta, is where I caught up with Waffle House spokesman Pat Warner. In the 50s, there weren't a lot of restaurants. Everybody ate at home, so eating out was kind of a fun thing to do. The food was cheap, made to order, and as a nutritionist would say, calorically dense. The chain has grown to over 2,000 restaurants these days, mainly in the South. We got folks who will drive past two or three Waffle Houses to go to their Waffle House because that's where their server's at, that's where their cook's at. Employees like grill operator and server Julia Williams. You know, I have to come see y'all when I'm here. All righty. Williams is the quarterback. 
the Tom Brady, if you will, of this particular Waffle House in North Atlanta. Order scramble, dry wheat plate on two. Handling details and making decisions on the fly. Breakfast side, flip it over for the lunch side. I was her rookie backup. So this entire restaurant, this is all riding on me? Pretty much. That's a terrible idea. I have no idea what I'm doing. And it quickly became apparent, uh, I don't know, I was uncoachable. Butter is right there. It didn't help that Waffle House basically has its own language. Order scrambled on two. One's a biscuit, plate. Plate means hash browns because mm -hmm. it's going to be the plate. And it's smothered and covered. For instance, smothered means with onions and covered means topped with cheese. There's no <laughs> way I'm going to remember this. And when it came to actually cooking the eggs, I was somehow even worse. Look down your line. Oh my God. Everybody stop ordering food. I need some time. It was clear that I was unqualified to make the food. Thank you, Luke. Good job. So I figured I'd at least eat some of it. Okay, a lot of it with Atlanta Magazine food critic Mara Shallop. It's basic food. It's like mostly brown. <laughs> you don't see anything green on this menu. It's meats, starch, and sugar, and butter, and grease, and everything that's comforting and wonderful. Waffle House also prides itself on being a comfort when things are anything but wonderful. Staying open through hurricanes. FEMA even has a name for it, the Waffle House Index. Meaning, if a storm is severe enough to shut down a Waffle House, then the government knows the area has been hit hard. When I get a Waffle House craving, I have to go. Regardless of the hour? Apparently, <laughs> because it's pretty late right now. <laughs> of course, staying open 24-7 means Waffle Houses are pretty much the go-to destination for late night eating. This is probably the only place that's near us that's open. And cheap. And cheap. She said it's always better when you're drunk. Wait, who told you that? <laughs> My mom. <laughs> My mom. <laughs> That's a bold parenting move. Is this going to be helping you guys out tomorrow morning when you get up? Probably for work, probably. Yeah. Yes. When today's Super Bowl is over, of course, the victors, they'll have their spoils. But the losers? Well, at least they'll be able to smother and cover their sorrows at the Waffle House. The line between original and replica is a fine line indeed at a studio called Factum Arte. Seth Doan takes us inside. High tech meets timeless craft in this Madrid workshop where they're reimagining the art of preservation. Here they're finalizing a 21st century version of a 16th century BC sculpture. It's utterly realistic, yet not real. There's no artistic license. This sarcophagus of Seti I is a reproduction accurate to one-tenth of a millimeter. You have all of these different people working in different rooms and yeah, different eras. Absolutely. So um, Factumati is really like one of those uh, ideas of a Renaissance-type workshop, but in the 21st century. The man behind this place, called Factumarte, is Adam Lowe. He's clad in the khaki colors of Indiana Jones and has the curiosity to match. Their mission, he acknowledges, can be difficult to explain. 
Normally I say something slightly evasive, like we're trying to use technology to preserve cultural heritage. But what we're really doing is we're trying to redefine the relationship between originality and authenticity. Their efforts to preserve cultural heritage involve going deep inside ancient tombs to chapels and famed museums, all to record masterpieces exactly as they are using high-tech scanners. We can actually study this data um, up to five or six times magnification without any data loss. So in fact, you can see the surface of the tomb better in the digital files than you can see with the naked eye on site. How? Why? Because you can keep zooming in. So it's like a, a doctor using a microscope. After the object is reported, Facta Marte reproduces it in-house using 3D printers and milling machines to create a base layer with all of the grooves and marks of the original. In this work, so-called skins are printed and laid on top. We're ensuring they're perfectly aligned with the surface underneath. And once they're in the right place, we put them into a vacuum bag and suck them so that the contact adhesive forms a permanent bond. The result, not just the look of the original. And as you rub your finger over it, you can feel the relief. You can feel where it was carved. Absolutely, and you look at this deep crack and you can run your finger right down in the middle of that. And at that point, you believe it. Lowe argues that substitute can be just as satisfying as seeing the real thing. But we still want to go to the Louvre to see the original Mona Lisa. It's not enough to see a print. I totally agree. But hanging in front of the original Mona Lisa is the original wedding at Cana by Veronese, which was one of the first big projects we worked on. Technicians from the Factum Foundation scanned the original wedding at Cana at the Louvre in Paris. And in 2007, the facsimile was hung in the original space in Venice, filling a gaping more than 700 square foot hole. We know the one in the Louvre is more original, but the experience of the facsimile in Venice is perhaps more authentic. Considering a copy more authentic is a provocative point of view and I'd go to a dinner party in London, and I'd say, I'm making a facsimile of the tomb of Seti I. Everyone would go, how horrible. It was one of those things that it had touched the prejudice that so many people hold. We recoil at this idea of forgeries, of fakes. Well, there's a, a fake is something that's intentionally deceitful. There is no deceit. We're very public about what we do. Everything's declared that it's a facsimile, and it's not trying to replace the original. It's trying to support the original. Factum makes only one facsimile, while all of the scanned data belongs to the institution caring for the object. They also train local people to do the scanning and see their work as crucial to the preservation of tombs like that of Egyptian pharaoh Seti I. Which, we have to remember, was built to last for eternity, but never to be visited. Cathedrals were built to be visited. Um, museums were built to be visited. Tombs were not. Replicating a tomb is a technological twist on preservation, far from the methods practiced 200 years ago. Here's what one wall of Seti's tomb looked like when it was discovered by the Italian explorer Giovanni Belzoni in the early 1800s. Belzoni gouged out what he wanted to take home. The strange thing is what was done in the name of preservation? 
Lowe created a panel to show the crude attempt at preserving. At that time, the colonial arrogance that the only way to preserve this was to remove it from the wall. And why remove this cartouche when you're in the most beautiful room in the tomb? In one of their latest large-scale works, Lowe's team recreated the so-called Hall of Beauties of Seti I's tomb and exhibited the breathtaking room last year in Basel, Switzerland. It will eventually find a permanent home in Egypt's Valley of the Kings, near another of Factum's monumental recreations, an exact copy of the burial chamber of Tutankhamun. And you can still see the original tomb of Tutankhamun. And we're getting lots of people doing both. And the response we're getting is extraordinary. If you can't tell the difference, and you know through one, you're helping the local community by being there, you're helping preserve the tombs by being there, and by the other, you're contributing to their destruction, which do you end up choosing? For a company that spends so much time studying the past, it's contemporary artists who are generally clients and use Factum's technology to create new objects and surfaces. What are you doing here? <laughs> It's a sort of a fanta fantastic monster, I would say. It's that work that pays the bills and allows Adam Lowe's Factum Foundation to continue developing their modern take on preservation, following the ideas set in ancient Egypt. Their goal was to build a tomb, build an environment filled with human knowledge that would last for eternity. That was the goal. And it, and it did. The hope here is this too will last, albeit in digital form or as a facsimile, a snapshot of the original as it is today. Look who's here. It's <laughs> Big Bird from Sesame Street. Hi, Jane. Hi. Do you know, we met a while back. Yeah. But you haven't changed a bit. Oh, really? I, I thought maybe I'd grown an inch. I know I haven't. <laughs> I hear your neighborhood is celebrating a big birthday. That's right, that's right. We sure are, and I, I'm so excited. Yeah, we uh, all yeah. are. You know what is the best thing about living on Sesame Street, Jane? What? Well, it's the kindest place where everybody's welcome. Oh, we all know that. Of course, Sesame Street is a two-way street. Just like Big Bird came to pay us a visit, Serena Altschul has been to pay one to you. You know the song and the neighborhood, but after five decades on the air, you still may not know how to get to Sesame Street. Well, just hop a train to Queens, New York, where a dedicated crew of performers, cameramen, puppet wranglers, and more have shot over 4,000 episodes of Sesame Street, including the 50th season, which premieres later this year. Now this I built back in 1970 because when we started the show they had all kinds of bells and buzzes and doorbells and going on. So I could buzz that and then I could change it. And I got a bell. Dick Maitland, who's been there from the beginning, <laughs> makes almost every sound effect heard on the show. I purchased and built this whole room which is installed here. And so what we have is, is a working 
sound effects fully staged as if you would find in Hollywood. Through his imagination, sea salt becomes... And so it sounds like walking in snow. Old audio tape is really... Now I'm going through the bushes. And a tugboat fits in the palm of your hand. Maitland says there's a secret to working on Sesame Street. Every day I come to work and I put on a little pair of glasses and it says I am four years old on it. And through that lens, then I can create the world that they see. This is exciting. I can't believe I'm at Sesame Street. Yeah. Yep, you're here. Yeah, this is the place. <laughs> I spoke with two very important monsters who are part of that world. One of the most important things that Elmore and Grover and everybody is learning is how to be kind. Yeah, it's yeah, very, it's important, very to important to be kind to one another. Yeah. yeah. What treating, are some of the other Elmer things? Elmore thinks treating people the way you would like to be treated is very important. That's a good one. That's yeah, a, that's a that, good that, thing to tell that's, that's deep. That's, like that's that. deep. Thank you. I'm have to write that one down. <laughs> as soon as I learn how to write. Yeah, right. Our mission to help kids grow smarter, stronger and kinder is infused throughout the organization. Jeff Dunn is the CEO of Sesame Street. He wants to continue the vision founders TV producer Joan Ganz Cooney and psychologist Lloyd Morissette had back in 1969. Could you use the power of television? First, this is near. Right here, near. To help teach less advantaged kids and get them ready for school. This is far! And what they knew was that kids who arrived to kindergarten knowing their ABCs and their one, two, threes were ahead of kids that didn't. So if we could figure out a way to help kids arrive at school ready to learn, that that would be a big contribution. It is the letter N. N in nice. To help capture kids' attentions, a young puppeteer named Jim Henson and his invention, the Muppets, were brought to Sesame Street. The rest our is history. Yeah, the rest is history. It's our secret weapon, yeah. <laughs> the Muppets are the secret weapon, yes. aren't they? It, it's really remarkable. If you see kids with a Muppet, you will see them just completely captivated. Hug me! Hug me now! <laughs> and in the effort to reach every child, special Muppets have been developed to address issues like homelessness. We don't have our own apartment anymore. Autism. Fluffster! Yeah. I know that Fluffster helps you feel calm, too. And even children with parents in prison. My dad is... My dad's in jail. Plus, Sesame Street is now seen in 150 countries around the world. Back on set, the eyes and ears of millions of children are in good hands. I see myself as an actor. I just mm -hmm. happen to be an actor from my elbow up. Matt Vogel, who plays the Count, and Martin Robinson, who is Telly, are two of the puppeteers that give life to Sesame Street. People yeah. always ask us, oh, you do the voices too. Well, the key to these characters yeah. is, you know, you've got all the, all the physical technique to make the puppet look real, mm -hmm. but it's really just a vehicle for the acting. When you say a word, they agreed to give me a lesson. Opening. 
Your okay. thumb is really kind of your jaw. Right. Okay. That's the jaw of the puppet. All right. So it's so it's Tip a one. it's a yeah. You, so you it's an isolation exercise. You know, oh. it's, it, which which looks kind of easy. It's not. Not easy yeah. at all. It's not so, easy at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> you are my friend today. So That's hand right. in to the center. Yeah. So your right yeah. hand goes in, or if you were is there, are you left? You're right hand. Right hand. Okay. Right. Yeah. You can do great. Here we go. And A B C D. Well, it's not child's play, but it's certainly fun. If we're not having fun doing it, no one's going to have fun watching it. So having fun doing it, that's, it's actually part of our job. T-U-V. Here's a hard one. And on Sesame Street, job number one is and always has been. Elmo just wants everybody out there to spread their love. Spread the love. Yeah. What about you, Grover? Spread the love yeah. like peanut butter on a sandwich. <laughs> How prison time became quality time for one young offender is the story Steve Hartman has to tell. I'll take you down to my old neighborhood. For 31-year-old Jermaine Wilson of Leavenworth, Kansas, going back to his childhood, is a bad trip. Yeah, I used to sell a lot of drugs out here, right there in apartment four. He started using at age 11, yeah. was in juvenile detention by 15, and in the maximum security wing at Lansing Correctional by 21. And it was here that this convicted drug dealer came to the most important realization of his life. If I don't change, it's either going to be two things that's going to happen. I'm either going to spend the rest of my life in prison or dead in a casket. You could have never imagined the third option. No, not at all. <laughs> we want to welcome you to our city commission meeting. Jermaine is now the mayor of Leavenworth, Kansas. Uh, the actual mayor. Motion carried 5-0. It's a transformation he credits to God, education, and volunteer work. After prison, he became a community activist and got his felony record expunged, paving the way for a political run. A lot of politicians decide to run for office and then go to prison. I know. <laughs> You're doing it the other way around. What are the advantages? There's this quote that I always go by. You'll never know what you are until you've encountered what you are not. I experienced being someone that I wasn't created to be. And when I tried the opposite, I succeeded. You can be what you want to be. Yes, I can. Today, Jermaine couldn't be more opposite. The school district that once had him expelled now welcomes him back with open arms. Jermaine Wilson. I'm the community outreach coordinator. He also works for a nonprofit that helps ex-cons find and keep good jobs. That's good. And, of course, he has his mayoring duties. All made possible, he says, by the gift of incarceration. That's why I'm here, because if that wouldn't have happened, I would have never had the time to think. I would have never had an opportunity, you know, to build a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So you suggest prison. No, I don't suggest prison. <laughs> but one thing I tell you, we all go through a time in our life where we hit rock bottom. When you're at rock bottom, there's only one other place to go. Up. And that's uh, meeting adjourn. <laughs> the call for the envelope, please, in a few weeks could herald good news for Sam Elliott, nominated for Best Supporting Actor in A Star Is Born. He's already had his share of bad news lately, as he tells Martha Teichner. So what here burned? All of it. Everything. Everything. Sam Elliott has had one hell of a year, good and bad. 
He still can't quite process his Oscar nomination. Sam Elliott in A Star is Born. We saw it come over the mountains. And over the ridge nearly the losing his family's home during the California wildfire in November that burned nearly 100,000 acres in Malibu. We went through the fire in Malibu, came right over the top of us, and we stayed and poured the water on and watched the house behind us burn to the ground. And we made it through, and it burned for days. It Navigating the contradictory realities he's been living, surreal. I was going through roadblocks in the middle of the night wearing a tuxedo. The irony here is that since 2008, my children Smokey Bear. Sam Elliott has been the voice of Smokey Bear. Only you can prevent wildfires. I'll tell you something that's really bizarre that struck me anyway, and that ad campaign started on my birthday. So Smokey Bear and I were born on the same day, August 9th, 1944. This is the part where I tell you I want you for myself. <laughs> Smokey Bear isn't necessarily what you think of first at the mention of Sam Elliott. The new sweet and spicy Lone Star barbecue sauce. It's the, the voice. Burt Reynolds has the best mustache ever. Says who? And the mustache. My dignity ain't for sale. And the rugged, upright characters he's been playing for decades, on television and in more than 50 movies. But let's start with the voice. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. Bradley Cooper copied it in A Star is Born. Elliot played Cooper's brother in the film. Thanks for the ride. Sure thing, Jack. I'd never met Bradley before this endeavor with him. I mean, I went to his home one night, and Bradley talked to me about his vision. And he also played that audio tape that he had been working on with a voice coach, in which he was trying to imitate my voice. I told you I can't wear those things, but I wear them, it's just in my head. And I, and I remember him saying, this is going to sound a little strange or a little weird, and it did. It sounded very weird because he sounded very much like me. Growing up in California and Oregon, Elliot dreamed of being a Hollywood actor. His father disapproved. I heard him say the proverbial line about he's got a snowball's chance in hell of having a career in that town one time to my mom. But guess what? After day's ride, we'll be home. Elliot got work, frequently in westerns. If we're going to have a future in this town, it's got to have some law and order. Nothing. Of course, the mustache didn't hurt. Nothing to do with you, Wyatt. It's got to do, to do with me. I don't believe this. Tell me whether your mustache has affected your career. <laughs> I don't know. I think the best one I probably had was in Tombstone. How you doing there, dude? Not too good, man. The one in the Big Lebowski was a good one. Sometimes you eat the bar, and sometimes the bar, he eats you. After Lebowski, instead of resisting typecasting, Elliot embraced what his inner cowboy stands for. Over time, I started running into people. They'd just say, thank you for what you do. And they'd talk about the character. They'd talk about the integrity. They'd talk about the things that mattered to me. I'm Betsy. How do you do, Betsy? 
Sam Elliott goes all, ah, shucks. I never thought about that. When I suggest he's still regarded as a sex symbol at 74. I would imagine that's fairly flattering. Of course it is. Totally flattering. <laughs> Happily married for more than 30 years to actress Catherine Ross, the father of a 34-year-old daughter, Cleo. He's just as self-deprecating about the attention he's getting this award season. You've been out there for 50 years developing as an actor, and now suddenly it's, it's Sam Elliott season. <laughs> it's like duck season. <laughs> Comes and goes. Music is essentially 12 votes between any of you. Except that guy Sam Elliott's been playing all those years has gotten wiser and deeper. It's the same story told over and over. And become a star along the way. You know, I played bad guys a couple of times and I didn't enjoy it. I just don't want to go there. There's enough of that negative stuff out there in the world. I'd rather make people feel good or make them cry or make them, you know, make them look inside themselves and know that they're not alone. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.